Well, you can open up your Bible to Exodus around 32, 33, and 34. We'll be all over the place in there. So, a few years ago, right before we moved to Michigan, I think this was 2016, we moved here in 2017, but right before we moved to Michigan, uh, a pastor friend of mine asked me to take a, a personality test, which I'm not huge on those, but haven't taken a lot of them, but he's a good friend, and he asked me to take a personality test to determine if I was a good candidate to plant a church with his church planning network. I am not. <laughs> there was this scale of qualities that they were looking for for a church planter, the ideal church planter, and I think I was on the opposite end of the scale on almost every one of those qualities. It was hilarious. But besides that, the way the profile worked was really kind of unique. What we did was I gave them email addresses for, I think, five coworkers or close friends who had worked with us in ministry, worked with me in particular um, pretty closely in ministry, and then Bethany and I both were part of this as well, so I think it was a total of seven people that received a list of 300 attributes or adjectives, qualities that you would maybe say were true of a person or not. They're all over the spectrum, right? So what they would do when they got this list is they would go through and they would click on any of the qualities that they thought of me, right? If this is true of Nathan, then you click this. If it's not true, if you don't think of this when you think of him, then don't click it, right? It's kind of an interesting way to approach it. But then the company would take this and they would build an assessment of me based on that and of my personality and my wiring and my strengths and weaknesses and all of that stuff. It was really a pretty fascinating thing and actually was quite helpful to me personally. Well, since then, I have on a much smaller scale, not 300 adjectives, but I have used a similar sort of tactic when trying to figure people out or ask people about others. Checking references would be one of these. I say to them, okay, to this friend or this coworker, can you give me four or five words that you think of when you think of this individual? And it's fascinating to see people sort of pause and think for a moment, and then they come up with four or five different words, and you actually can start to get a, a decent picture of what this person is like based on the words that they choose. And so this morning, let me have you do this really quickly with God in your mind. What are the first four or five words that come to mind when you think of God? Well, maybe you didn't realize this, but there's actually a passage in Scripture that gives us a clear list of adjectives that describe God's character, and they all come in succession. And this list of adjectives is not given by a coworker. This list of adjectives about God is given by God. And he has revealed himself, particularly to Moses in this instance, but ultimately to us as well, when he gives this list of qualities and of attributes. And I want to show you this list this morning in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Look there with me. It says, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, a God 
merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now here you have one of the clearest statements given by God in Scripture of what he is like, of defining his character for us to know him. And the theme of our whole series in the book of Exodus, the whole book is about knowing God, and it's about God rescuing the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt in order that they might know him, rescued to know him. And this statement here from God to Moses is clear and it is thick. It's thick with revelation about what God is like, about his self-assessment and his self-understanding. And this marks a point in Scripture where after this, these words are used over and over again throughout the rest of the Old Testament to describe God. At key points, they're picked up by Israelites later on, and they're used as a way to acknowledge who God is, to understand who He is, and to even make sense of their experience in their daily lives. If you look, you don't have to turn there, but Psalm 51 David's confession of his sin with Bathsheba and the consequences of that and his request for forgiveness and holiness from God starts with some of these words. And that's intentional because he knows who God is. So what's at the heart of this statement? There's a lot of adjectives here, but let's sort of try to simplify this statement a bit this morning and sort of pare it down into two major qualities that are true of God. And if you were to do that this morning, I think this is accurate and right, you would come up with something like this, mercy and justice, grace and righteousness. Now, here's the interesting thing about these qualities when you pair them together. It's very difficult for you and I to reconcile these two. How can someone be both of these at the same time? In our humanity and our finiteness, We can only exhibit one of these at a time, it seems like. And one author said this about this passage and about this tension that is found in mercy and justice. How are the Lord's mercy and grace to be understood alongside his declaration that he will judge the guilty? Does not the Lord have either to forgive the iniquity of sinners or visit iniquity upon sinners? Or, as it is commonly expressed, what is the relationship between mercy and judgment? Those are some of the most important questions we can ask about God. How can he be both? When you read Exodus 34, 6, and 7, there is tension there. You can see it when he says, but I am merciful, but I'm also a God of justice and of judgment, and I'm both of these things at the same time. And I highlight this for us because I think this is the center of this section that we're going to start looking at today, Exodus 32 to 34. And I think it's the center of this section, and the whole thing builds toward this point in Exodus 34, and the whole story of the golden calf 
and all the craziness that Israel does and that happens, all explains this theological statement, and this theological statement explains what happens. It goes back and forth. God's revelation of his character and his tension and the tension that is found there comes right in the middle of this and I think helps to, to explain it. And so let me remind you where we're at in the flow of the book of Exodus and you can see where this section is positioned, right? Exodus 25 to 31 is the instructions given to Moses on the mountain regarding the tabernacle and regarding the priests. And then if you skip forward a little bit in chapter 35 to 40, then you have almost identical instructions and those are when Israel actually goes about building the tabernacle and ordaining and installing the priests. But you're interrupted by all of those detailed instructions with this narrative here in 32 to 34. And this story tells us about Israel's rebellion against God and about them breaking the covenant that they have just made with him. And then about God's response to that. And so as we see God in action, we're going to learn more about him and we're going to unpack his character and we're going to get a better sense of how justice and mercy come together in him. And the thing about it is you can't really grasp God's mercy or the perfect righteousness of his justice, you can't understand either of those things unless you come to grips with the human problem of sin. It's hard to make sense of his grace and his justice and how those two go together unless you begin to plumb the depths of our sinful hearts and how that expresses itself in our actions. And that's what we're going to do this week and next week. And that's in chapter 32. So flip back a page to chapter 32. In the beginning of chapter 33, there was just no way I could cover all of this in one week. I tried really hard, but it just wouldn't work. So 32, in the beginning of 33, and we're going to see this, uh, this passage, we're going to study this passage this week and next, and here's what we're going to see. Five ways the problem of sin disrupts and destroys. This is the context in which God reveals his character to Moses. Those words are just words unless you see them against the backdrop of God's actions and Israel's actions in this passage. It's a theological statement, but it's found in a particular context that makes sense of it. And you first have to understand this problem of sin. And so here's five ways the problem of sin disrupts and destroys. And the first one of these is found in 32, 1 to 6, and it's this. We seek security and satisfaction on our terms and not God's. So keep in mind where we are in the movement of the book of Exodus. I just sort of gave you the big picture, but let's zoom in a little bit. Go back to chapter 24 and verse 18. A couple of pages back, chapter 24 and verse 18, this is at the end of the covenant ratification ceremony. So God reveals his law to Israel. He gives them the 10 words or the 10 commandments. They agree to obey. There's this whole ceremony where the elders of Israel eat and have fellowship with God halfway up the mountain. And then look at chapter 24 and verse 18. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Then chapter 25 to 31 give us 
what God told Moses while he's on the mountain. All about the tabernacle and the priesthood and all of that. Now go forward to chapter 31 and verse 18. And he, God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. These are the tablets of the covenant. This is God's covenant with his people. And he finishes speaking with Moses, and he gives him these tablets of the covenant. So Moses has been on the mountain receiving all of these instructions from God, and it's been a whole bunch of chapters in the book of Exodus. And you may start to wonder, well, what is Israel doing while Moses is up on the mountain? Well, look ahead to chapter 32 and verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now try to understand what's going on here and why they are responding this way. The people have not been told how long Moses will be up on the mountain. They know he went up the mountain, but they don't know he's going to be gone 40 days. And 40 days is a long time for him to be away. He has been their leader, and now he's gone. And he's been on the top of this fiery mountain with smoke coming off of it for 40 days and 40 nights. And so the people start to talk, I'm sure, and they start to say, I don't think he's coming back. Our leader is gone. And so then when they think our leader is gone, now they start to make this connection to their future. And they start to think, well, we need leadership and protection as we go into the wilderness and as we make our way toward the promised land. And so notice what they tell Aaron here. Up, make us gods who shall go before us. They're looking to the future. Moses is gone. They don't know where he is. They need security. They need leadership. They need confidence that they're going to make it to the promised land. There are a lot of enemies out there. They've already faced some of them. And now they're looking to the future and they're like, we need help. So they say this to Aaron. They need some tangible assurance that things are going to go well for them. Now, of course, as you and I are reading this, we're like, well, you guys already have tangible assurance. God has told you, he has promised you that he's going to fulfill his promises to the patriarchs. And he's going to bring you into the promised land. And so they have that, but rather than trusting God to work in his way and in his timing, they revert back to the old lifestyle, the old ways that they had in Egypt, and they turn to other gods for help. And they turn to these other gods because they can control and manipulate these gods. Look at verses 2 through 4. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they, the people, when they saw it, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
Now it's amazing to remember where they got all this gold. How did they get this? Well, remember, when they left Egypt, God gave them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. God gave them favor, and the Egyptians gave them their treasures and gave them their gold. And so they plundered the Egyptians on their way out, and now the Israelites are taking these gifts from God, and they're turning them over to a God who can never provide for them and who can never meet their needs and can't do a single thing to help. Notice their words in verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Where have you heard these words before? At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, chapter 20 and verse 2. It's on the screen. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The covenant begins this way with God defining himself as their redeemer. And when the people see the golden calf, they take these words that God spoke and attribute their salvation and their rescue and their deliverance from Egypt to this inanimate inanimate golden calf. Now think about how evil this is, how despicable this is. Think about the circumstances. Moses is literally at this moment on the mountain and he's receiving instructions from God on how God will come and live among his people and how they can build his house, the tabernacle, so that he can do them good and bless them and so they can enjoy the glory of his presence. And they've already promised multiple times everything the Lord said we will do. Yes, we will obey. They were part of a covenant ceremony that was ratified with blood. Remember, Moses sprinkled the blood on the altar and sprinkled the blood on them as well to show that they were partaking of this. And yet we find them breaking the first two commandments, at least the first two. And they're attributing God's deliverance and his salvation and his glory to this idol. As I was reading about this this week, one author said, at least one author, maybe multiple authors said that the scene here is quite similar to one spouse having an affair on the wedding night. I mean, that's what's happening here. The covenant has just been ratified. God is literally giving them more instructions about how to bless them and do them good. And Israel goes out and finds another God to worship and to attribute God's salvation to. And Aaron, the one who God is planning to make the high priest, to be the primary mediator between the people and between him, is in the middle of it all. Look at verses 5 and 6. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, before the golden calf. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, which were supposed to be to Yahweh God. And the people sat down to eat and drank and drink and rose up to play. I mean, what's going on here? I mean, this is crazy how quickly this has happened. And as, you, as we've read the book of Exodus, we've seen hints at how sinful people are, particularly Israel, Right? We've seen them complain and grumble in the wilderness and turn on Moses and on Aaron pretty quickly. 
But this, this is like a whole new level for them. How does this happen? And I think that's an important question for us to ask because this gets to the core of one of our major problems with sin. Let me read you a quote. It's a little long, but I think this says it really well and gets to the heart of the the issue here with Israel that then makes application for you and I. We may ask how a people who had only a few weeks earlier committed themselves in a blood oath not to recognize any other gods or to make any idols could have so soon and apparently so lightly dismissed all that. One possible answer is that they were insincere in accepting the covenant, but there's no evidence at all in support of such a position. Rather, the truth is that they did not understand the depth of the human problem. They were encountering for the first time the problem that the Apostle Paul detailed so eloquently in Romans 7. That problem is twofold. First is the power of human desire. We want things. This is it. We want things, and not merely or even chiefly material things. We want security, pleasure, comfort, and power. And these desires are so powerful that we are willing to do almost anything to get them, including things that are ultimately self-destructive and forbidden by God. And so we have these desires that are welling up within us. Oops, sorry. That are welling up within us. And then God gives them the law. And here's the rest of this. The second aspect of the problem is that while the Torah or the law points out why we should not live as slaves of desire, it cannot itself defeat desire. And so they had the law, but their hearts were bent out of shape. The law cannot ultimately change their desires or our desires. The rules won't bring about a change of heart. And so we have this hunger for security and for power and for control. And all of those desires are aimed in the wrong direction. And Paul even says the law actually increases the desire because of our sinfulness. And so what Israel does and what we do is rather than trusting God for these things, for these desires and finding our fulfillment and our satisfaction and our security in him, then we create other gods, or we adopt the gods of the culture around us. And we get sucked into the world, and we start to think, if I can just have enough money, if I can just have security, if I can just have a little bit of power, if my political party will win, then everything will be okay, and I can find my delight in that, and I can live well. This is the problem with Israel, and this is the problem with us. And the Bible addresses this over and over again, this pursuit of other gods. Psalm 106 describes this very situation. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them? But this pursuit that we have in our desires of goodness, of security, and satisfaction outside of God, just like Israel did here, 
This is pure insanity. I mean, listen to how Jeremiah describes this. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? Talking about Israel. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. It's insane. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What would my neighbors think if they saw me going out of my house every morning with a two-gallon clear container for water and walking down the sidewalk to the front of my subdivision and going and opening the fence up to go down into the retaining pond that is placed there and going down to the edge and dipping my container in the retaining pond and filling it up and carrying it back to my house every single morning. And it's a clear container, so they're watching this, and they can see the muddy water and the nasty water, because it's kind of nasty looking, at least from a distance. And they're thinking, what is the water in his house not working? And here's the thing. I have water, limitless, filtered, clear water that is there, and I can just stick a cup up to my fridge and get some of it. And this is the problem. This is what we do. Our desires are bent out of shape, and so we make broken cisterns, and we pursue water that will make us sick and make us less than human and twist us even more because our hearts are broken. And you might think, well, I don't do this. I don't worship idols. I don't have any idols in my house. I can see how a golden calf is a tragic replacement for the one true and living God. But we are sophisticated Westerners. We are Americans. No idols for us. Well, this exchange that Jeremiah talks about here, the exchange of the glory of the one true God for broken cisterns, this is the human problem. This is at the root of all of our sin. And this is what Paul talks about in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The root issue you'll notice in these verses for all of humanity is that we fail to recognize the authority of God and the goodness of God. And so because of that, we fail to honor him as he deserves because he's God and we fail to thank him for all that he has done. And so because of that, because of this exchange, we turn elsewhere to find purpose and meaning. And we always turn to created things, to self to money, to power, to sex, to influence. And our exchange of the glory of God for all of these created things, for the gifts of God, is no different than what Israel has done here with the golden calf. Listen to how Paul applies this story in 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to read this whole section to you. Several slides here. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, speaking about Israel. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, 
With most of them, God was not pleased. So they had every opportunity, had the revelation of God, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. That's the lesson, at least one of them, that Paul wants us to get at here. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, this is from Exodus 32.6, the people sat down to eat and drank and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. A later story. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. There's just a little bit of humility that needs to come to each one of us when we view this story and not think, man, Israel, that was insane. How could they have done that? And then we need to make the transfer over to ourselves and say, I I don't think I can stand based on my own ability and my own goodness. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Same thing as Israel and us. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, this exchange that we've been talking about, this idolatrous exchange, happens because of the desires in our corrupted hearts, because our hearts are bent and broken and aimed at the wrong things. And this is the second way that sin disrupts and destroys. And this is the last one we'll hit this morning. This is in verses 7 through 10. We act from corrupted hearts, verses 7 through 10. Now, here the scene shifts. Right? We've been at the bottom of the mountain with the Israelites and Aaron watching the craziness unfold, and now the scene shifts up to the top of the mountain. And God, who of course is watching the whole thing, sees all of it happen, and he gives in these verses Moses his assessment of, the, of Israel and of what's happening. Look at verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And I want you to notice in these verses how God describes the Israelites. In verse 7, we just read it there, he says that they have acted corruptly. They have corrupted themselves. In other words, their sin is not neutral. They act and show, their actions show defilement and they cause defilement in them. They make them unholy. They are stained, and their actions are breaking them down. They destroy. When I think of the word corruption, I think of leaving a tomato on the counter for weeks on end and watching what happens to it. The skin starts to break down, and it gets spots on it, and it is disgusting and smelly. That's corruption. That's the human heart. And as you sin, you show that your heart is corrupted and then it increases it because you give yourself to habits and ways of living that further defile and that further stain. This is the same word, this word corruption, that is used in Genesis 6. 
Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Well, what's behind this? Why was this God's assessment in Genesis of the earth? Why had people ended up like this? A few verses earlier. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is why the earth was corrupted. Sin begins in the heart and the desires because we want things. We want them on our terms and not God's. And it flows out into our actions. And we're born into this sinful state. It impacts every part of who we are. Look back in Exodus 32, verse 8. God further explains how he views Israel. Verse 30, I'm sorry, chapter 32 and verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Their corrupted hearts led them to directly and defiantly disobey God's commands. And so they're acting corruptly, and now they're defiantly disobeying God's commands. Look at verse 9. Further assessment. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They're stubborn in their sin. They don't want to turn from it. They're not easily swayed from it. All of these descriptions here, that they're defiant, they're disobedient, their hearts are corrupted and destroying things, and the fact that they're stubborn in their sin and committed to it, all of this describes the human condition, the hearts of the people. So what's God's response? Verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. What's God's response? He's angry. Now, sometimes you'll hear people describe the God of the Old Testament, they always say it that way, as sort of this volatile guy who's full of wrath and he's quite different from the New Testament God. God does respond to sin with wrath. And he does so when that sin and when that wrath, let me say it this way, when he does so when the wrath is fully and completely rational and justified. It's perfectly right and perfectly just for God to respond to these actions in this way. I mean, remember what he said in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. God's jealousy is appropriate, and it is right. And in many ways, it's not like human jealousy. It's not wild. It's not out of control. It's not reckless. His love's not reckless either. But it is similar to human jealousy in the sense that God, when he sets his love and affection on someone, he will do whatever it takes to keep their loyalty and their love for him. 
And when he sets his love and his affection on someone, he rightly demands their complete devotion to him. And he demands that because he deserves it, because of his goodness and his power, because of who he is. And so he's a jealous God that responds in anger because he's not going to allow another lover into this relationship and into this covenant. And that is appropriate. So this morning, this is as far as we're going to get in this text. We're going to stop here. We're going to continue next week. But let me just bring you back to the beginning. Let me re-emphasize to you that you really cannot grasp all that I've been talking about with sin, and you really cannot grasp the grace of God without a full understanding of Exodus 34, 6, and 7, and then of this passage here in Israel's sin. What does it mean for God to be loving, patient, and forgiving while also judging those who commit iniquity? That's the question, and that's what this passage is going to help us to get at. The narrative here gives definition to that theological description of God and vice versa. And so what's the application for you and I? Well, a couple things this morning. We do well to follow Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 10. Watch what happens to Israel here and learn from it. Learn from their evil desires. Learn not to imitate them. Another thing that you and I can learn from this is I would say that even at this point, I hope you're seeing the depths of human sin and the wickedness of it, the evil of our hearts and how it disrupts and destroys and rejects God and wants its own way, even in a self-destructive way. I hope you're beginning to feel that and sense that as you read through this passage. Because you need to feel that and sense that as you go through this passage. And when you do, that should, if you're a believer in Christ, propel you forward to the grace of God and propel you forward to rejoice in what God has done for you and how he has shown mercy and kindness to you, even though your heart, when you were born, was in this exact same situation, desiring what is evil at any cost, wanting your own way, rejecting God, and yet God in his mercy and kindness has brought you to himself and changed your heart and lifted you out of sin and a sinful way of life and set you on a path to love him and to know him. And all of it is for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to reckon with our sinful hearts. Help us to understand the depths of human sin. And then as we go through these, these chapters over the next couple weeks, help us to see the full revelation of your character that's found here. You are a God of mercy and justice. And how can that be? How does that work itself out? Help us to know you more so that we can respond to you, as Paul says in Romans, by honoring you and by thanking you and rightly relating to you as the redeeming God of grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.